This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You know, a month or so ago when this SNC-Lavalin scandal was still gaining traction and gaining steam, you know, we wondered, oh, is this, is this going to affect people when the time comes for an election this fall? Well, here we are now, two months after this story first broke, and I think it's safe to say, yeah, it's going to linger for this fall. It, one of the biggest reasons why is because of what happened yesterday. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, came out yesterday in a late afternoon press conference and said that Jody Wilson-Raybould and Dr. Jane Philpott had been removed from the Liberal Party caucus. And not only that, they were being stripped of their ability to run as Liberal candidates in the upcoming federal election. And like Jody Wilson-Raybould had already been chosen as the candidate for Vancouver Granville. So now they'll have to find somebody else to run there. So we're asking you for our hot question of the day. What should Jody Wilson-Raybould, our Vancouver Granville MP, do next? Should she run as an independent? Should she maybe join another party? Should she join the Conservatives? Should she join the NDP? Or should she just quit politics altogether? What do you think? There's a lot of speculation that she is going to run as an independent, and that would put her directly up against whoever the candidate ends up being for the Liberal Party. I'm sure they're looking around for one right now to take her spot in Vancouver Granville. But what would what do you think Jody Wilson-Raybould should do for this fall's upcoming election? Should she run as an independent? Should she join the Conservatives? Should she join the NDP? Or should she quit politics altogether? Come on, have your say on this. You can cast your vote online. You can go to SimiSarah980 to let us know what you think about that and, and vote, right? If you don't have Twitter, then you can email me as well, simi at cknw.com and send me your thoughts. And then there's our buzz line, which is 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. Now, there's obviously a lot of options here. Dr. Jane Philpott had kind of made a Facebook posting yesterday where she was talking about how the reasons why she got into politics and how she hasn't now decided what she's going to do. It sounded very likely to me that both of these women will try to run as an independent, which I think makes for such an interesting story come this fall as well. And especially here, there will be a lot of support for an independent run for Jody Wilson-Raybould. So what do you think she should do? Should she do that? Or should she just quit politics altogether? Or should she join another party? Cast your vote on that. Let me know what you think. 55 days ago, the Globe and Mail first reported a story about Jody Wilson-Raybould, the Prime Minister's office, and SNC-Lavalin. Here's the story of what happened next. So, so, so scandalous. The allegations in the Globe story this morning are false. Her presence in cabinet uh, should actually speak for itself. Some breaking news. Jody Wilson-Raybould, the Vancouver MP who was the Justice Minister, has now resigned from the Trudeau cabinet. This just coming in, Justin Trudeau's principal secretary and longtime friend has resigned in a statement, but categorically denies the accusation that he or anyone else in the PMO improperly pressured Jody Wilson-Raybould. We felt that outside advice was appropriate. The company involved employs so many people across the country. The member uh, from uh, Vancouver Granville will be able to address relevant matters at the committee while ensuring that the two active court cases are not jeopardized. I experienced a consistent and sustained effort by many people within the government to seek to politically interfere in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion in my role as the Attorney General of Canada. There was an erosion of trust 
between my office and specifically my former principal secretary and the former Minister of Justice and Attorney General. Jane Philpott has resigned from Cabinet directly citing the situation with Jody Wilson-Raybould as the reason for the resignation. Michael Wiernick, clerk of the Privy Council, the country's top bureaucrat, is leaving his job, telling Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in an open letter that recent events show him there's no path for a relationship of mutual trust if the Conservatives or NDP form the next government. The whole issue of the House of Commons Justice Committee, there was a motion to abruptly adjourn the meeting passed by the Liberal majority. Like They just shut the whole thing down and then there was kind of chaos. Cover up. No, it's a cover up. I'm strongly voting opposed and I'm shocked at the behavior of my colleagues. McLean's overnight published an interview with Jane Philpott. Philpott told McLean's that there's more to the story and it needs to be told. This call may be monitored or recorded for quality assurance or training purposes. This is like breaching a constitutional principle of prosecutorial independence. So we can... Well, then nobody's explaining that to him, Michael. If a politician secretly records a conversation with anyone, it's wrong. And when that cabinet minister is the Attorney General of Canada secretly recording the clerk of the Privy Council, it's unconscionable. Now we continue our coverage of the SNC-Lavalin scandal on The Simi Sarah Show. Oh, our political panelists were shaking their heads and we haven't even started the conversation yet. Elise Mills is with us, a senior associate at Sussex Strategy and Maria Dobrinskaya, BC Director at the Broadbent Institute. Welcome back. Hi. Good morning. You're both shaking your head. Maria, I'm going to start with you. Why? Why are you shaking your head? I just, you know, this entire mess has been an epic failure on the part of the Prime Minister. Um, I, you know, I understand as, as a partisan, I understand the sort of untenable situation of having Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott in that caucus. Um, I agree. The trust was broken. Uh, but the way that he framed this, that the tr- the broken trust falls on her, fell, fell on Jody Wilson-Raybould, and has what, what we have not at any point throughout this entire mess seen the prime minister take any kind of responsibility. So he hasn't sure. outright denied um, her accusations. He hasn't, um, you know, challenged her version of events. I mean, he's had his his uh, uh, staff do that on his behalf, but we haven't actually heard him take any responsibility. So I think what we're seeing right now is, um, you know, is a bit of a, a tension or crossroads between uh, politics as it is. You know, we're seeing a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of commentators saying there he should have gotten rid of them out of caucus a long time ago. Yeah. I understand that. That's how politics works or how it has worked. I think, you know, Jody Wilson-Raybould came in believing what the prime minister was selling her in terms of a new way of doing politics, uh, doing politics differently. And she, I think, was actually trying to save the Liberal Party from itself, not sabotage it. The message here is buyer beware on uh, what I would call fraudulent brands, right? So I agree completely with my colleague here is that Jody and Jane and other women or, well, I guess actually I thought there would be other women, but they apparently have been... put in a position where they're being puppeteered by a man to fight a man's battles, which we see on daytime dramas all the time, right? It's how women are supposed to be catty and bitchy with Is each other. Is that fair, though? Can they not disagree? I mean, I think all Karen women Gould, don't think alike. All when, women don't have to think alike. No, but when Karen Gould came out uh, 10 days ago and suggested that Jody Wilson-Raybould and maybe Jane included and suggested this, I think, to McLean's magazine, that there was a conspiracy theory that she was un- unpacking here that Jody had targeted 
targeted the riding to always go after Justin Trudeau. And I thought, Karen, take another toke off that legalized marijuana because you're just spinning, sister. Okay, let me ask you this. In our system of the parliamentary democracy that we have here, we have a party whip system and the way it works. Mm -hmm. Would it have been possible to leave them in caucus? Well, I, I okay, so... I'm a conservative. I worked with the uh, Stephen Ask Harper. Yourself, what would Stephen Harper do? Well, first he of all, he wouldn't even waived confidentiality to begin with. I well, think. First but. of all, we wouldn't be in the legislation that led up to the DPA, right? He was always against it. He was uh, very firm, and I will say, I think there's in retrospect, a lot of people are much more fair to Stephen Harper uh, on the business and foreign affairs side. And I think that Stephen Harper was always right when he made sure that lobbying groups understood he was never going to let this, uh, like the the barn door, open like this because of this very reason. I also think there's a juxtaposition with the DPA and then what Justin Trudeau was always talking about, which is, you know, transparency and democracy and and making sure those who um, commit crimes are held responsible. But what we know today, which I find very interesting, is that exactly what my colleague said, that if we're talking about egregious behavior, this woman bent her own moral beliefs around her background in law because she felt so intimidated she knew that she had to tape it. Here's my other question. The EDC, Export Development Canada, is now investigating SNC this morning for $3.7 billion of funding they took for sewage infrastructure and all that stuff because they believe that uh, it just uh, that it went money into a slush fund, and yeah. it was used for bribery, which by means that the three of us and our listeners and everyone else in Canada contributed to a bribery sch- uh, scheme. So that investigation is kicked. But up. the question is, what would you do then? Like, if, if in our in our party whip system, how do you keep those two so, people well, in, you in the caucus? Immediately, don't have to bully them. I think what we would have done, and you got to remember, we went through the Duffy thing. I mean, that I still yeah. have memories of that. And, and sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. my colleague, but I think what you do and what he should have done right away is said, listen. I have to remove you from caucus. We will proceed with a fulsome investigation. And at that point, we will decide whether this marriage is broken or we can repair it. So you're saying way back when? Yeah, no, yeah. This yeah. Is 50, yeah I think this is 54 days too late. Um, <laughs> that was great. No, yeah, I mean, I, do, I, yeah. I get it. Like, as a partisan, I get it. I think it is not a not a workable situation for those two women to may, be in that caucus. Right. I do want to, though, go back to your initial point around, you know, our Westminster parliamentary system. You look in the UK. You look in Australia, they have the same system as, as we do, um, and there's a lot more leeway, and, and some could argue that that's, it doesn't work, but uh, there's certainly a lot more space for people to be um, very vocally critical of, right. of the leader and, may, and remain in caucus. What Trudeau should have done, I mean, part of the, the challenge with this entire situation has been this drip, 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 drip around issues management. If he had right from the beginning either said, you don't have confidence in me, we're tearing the Band-Aid off, you're out of caucus, or... I acknowledge some responsibility for what's happened here. I commend your ethical actions, and let's work together to make the Liberal Party better. I cannot Stay. understand why that didn't happen. Well, this would—that's what it, I don't it, understand. Well, you know exactly, so, exactly. But if this thing. were Australia and the UK, though, it's very likely that that would have happened, though, because there would have been more power to the people in caucus to remove the we're leader. Missing the conversation about the clerk. So first of all, Prime Minister Harper wouldn't have chosen that clerk. And he, he worked in, in Harper's government. Listen to this, though. I, and I want to be very careful. I am not making any uh, accusations. I'm asking some questions. In the first year, there were several very high-ranking, very well-known, and I've spoken to many uh, high-ranking members of the public service this past week, and they gave me this information. They want me to ask this question on air. 
why was the Deputy Minister of Transportation and why was the Deputy Minister of what we used to know as Foreign Affairs removed? They, uh, there was a witch hunt that went on. I'd also asked, I'd like to ask that uh, the clerk, the former clerk, what relationship he had with Jean-Pierre uh, Kingsley, who's our Chief Electoral Officer. Uh, because I have questions about how that Electoral Officer ran the 2015 campaign. We've never seen so many complaints. They also gave money to partisan groups. My question is, when Mr. Uh, Wernicke makes that statement about the assassination and all that sort of stuff and it really tries to stir the pot to avoid the responsibility or the accusations uh, that were being made or levied against him. Why did he make that statement and what was he connected or was there a plan already being plotted for the next election with the electoral officer? Because there is has been widespread speculation on the Hill that is a very cozy relationship. The other thing I'd like to say is that Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, when she released that tape, and Mr. Trudeau needs to understand this, I don't care what he says today, the media needs to be saying that tape proved her right. Everyone has agreed with that. So legally speaking, where do we stand now? And I think that's where Jody's looking at as well. Now, Maria, what happens now? There's some rumors, some speculation that Jody Wilson-Raybould will run as an independent in Vancouver Granville. Do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, that, that that's a good question. Um, I think it's really, really hard to get elected as an independent. Part of the centralization of control in the prime minister's office that we see uh, is because of that, is because of how important the party brand is. Now, having said that, if anybody could could pull it off, I think she could. Um, and certainly the the indication is that there's a lot of popularity um, for her, not just in her riding, but across the country. Um, but that's a good question. I mean, one of the things about them getting uh, ejected from caucus yesterday is, you know, it, in my mind, it was only a matter of time. And, and I think sort of making her a martyr or, you know, it, it works in her favor in a sort of public yeah. relation sense right now. But that was going to run out. And I was, I was curious if, you you know, I she would have had a very hard time in my mind without some kind of resolution on the SNC Lavalin situation um, to be running uh, in our in our parliamentary system essentially to elect a prime minister that she had been so outspoken. That was kind of weird, right? Uh, that was in yeah. opposition to. So yeah. at a certain point in the summer or early in the fall, I think that 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 tension would have again been untenable, but. That's moot now because because she's out of caucus. Right. Well, it really becomes, and I asked this of a, a good liberal uh, named John Maz. He used to be a strategist, but had left the party when Trudeau came in because he couldn't understand why they were choosing airy fairy stuff versus like laying some what I would consider legacy liberal legacy policy items. Right. So we were speaking the other day, and I said to him, you know, I I think you guys as liberals have to figure out who's more important, your 100-plus-year legacy or Trudeau? Who outranks? Who's Who should stay? And I have to say this. When they when there was male and female liberals going, yeah, they should just leave. You know what? As a woman, I'm tired of leaving my house, my job, a party, a social event, whatever, well, because men have behaved badly. And that's what happened here, right? Wouldn't you say this was a cross- party issue for yeah. a lot of women. And I, oh, as yeah, a absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. mean, seeing her, just seeing how this has all played out, seeing her undermined the way that she was sort of um, criticized, demeaned, Jody-centric, all of the ways in which she was diminished, even all the way through <laughs> into yesterday, yeah. this is being about her breaking trust. Again, the yeah. Prime Minister not taking any responsibility. I have a really yeah. good example of this. I was on the phone with a liberal strategist the other day who I've been very friendly with for over a decade. 
And this is actually might be a breaking point for us. I talked about the bad behavior of John McCallum, who it was notorious. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but he, I don't know if he struggled with alcohol. I don't know what went on, but um, he was very misogynist. He always has been quite rude. And his he's behavior, the former ambassador to China. Mm-hmm. Who and I hope moved, he stays yeah. former, former forever, ever, ever. No, I, as women, we should not tolerate that behavior. I explained this. I said, because he's going on about what a hard bitch Jody is, if I can say that on air. I hope I can. Well, you just did. Okay, so. sorry. Not much and, I can do about and that it now. She was, sorry, people. Um, I figure if we legalize marijuana, we can probably say that <laughs> word on there. But, um, but you know, it was like, she's stubborn. She's this. And I so I say, what about John McCallum? And he's like, I love John. He's a good guy. Yeah. That's what gets yeah, all of us. double so standard. It's, it's not about standard. a conservative. So I would say this. Jody, Jane is probably not going to run again. She's very well liked in her riding, and I feel very bad. She's a lovely person. I voted her my favorite minister and MP for a couple of years in a row. She was an outstanding health minister. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. a conservative, mm-hmm. so for me, I'm just excited that these smart, brave, tough women are there. Jody, though, think about it for a second. Isn't her being a liberal MP so limiting to what she has demonstrated to us? You realize that Jody has moved the needle in a way that the feminist movement for the last 20 years could not. But is that across the country or is that here in BC? I I mean, it's definitely here in BC. I think that's a good question whether it's across the country. But I think that also speaks to the issue of will she run as an independent? It's one thing as to whether or not she could get elected as an independent. Mm -hmm. What is she going to do as an independent in the House of Commons in a party Mm -hmm. system where... You know, she saw what she was able, the impact she was able to have as and that's one of the yeah. most powerful ministerial roles in the country. Um, you know, as a as a as an independent MP, you know, you can be very very effective in many ways, but you are not having the kind of impact that Jody Wilson Raybould has shown she she is capable of delivering, and that I would I expect wants to continue to to. I would also suggest that we would probably both recommend to her that she has to figure this out very quickly because she doesn't want to lose the, the momentum and, yeah. Yeah, and the branding yeah. and the position. She has to make a well, and that certainty even, in a voter's yeah. mind who yeah. today, you know, I get emails from people saying, I would vote for her. Yeah. Well, let them know they can vote for you and then hold that vote. It, yeah, but exactly. What I mean, about I, if she would like to be a leader, uh, Trudeau, quite frankly, needs to question whether or not he has a legacy here, whether he should continue on. But I think next leadership, it is very possible uh, that she could come in and run, but she needs to be already thinking five years ahead and moving her way through. And and this is all, um, you know, we're talking about the politics of the situation. I think the other thing um, that frankly is not getting as much attention, certainly lately, um, is the legalities, is the issue around SNC-Lavalin, the, the, the DPA, like what happens with that case? Was there political interference in a public prosecution? If that story ends up, if there is a there there, um, if there's RCMP interest, if there, you know, the, they've, the, the liberals have shut down the Justice Committee, um, you know, we may or may not learn more about it. But if we do, and if there is more to that story, that keeps that, that I mean, Trudeau and their, their government would clearly like to just they, close they the book on that these move women, on, yeah. close the page, and turn we, the page, and that's and it. On. And we have an issue because the ethics officer, who was a liberal appointed, didn't go through the proper appointee process, yeah. which is already questionable. God, this government 
we are supposed to be putting this through the ethics commission or, or committee. We don't have a commissioner anymore. See, that's more for us to talk about on our next time that we have you guys here. <laughs> Place is a mess. So, so much. I know. Me. Clearly. It's Elise Mills, <laughs> Senior Associate at Sussex Strategy, and Maria Dobrinskaya, the BC Director of the Broadbent Institute. Thank you very much Thank for you. coming Thank in you. today. Well, it is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. So when I saw on social media that Coquitlam Mayor Richard Stewart had jumped right into confronting the littering problem, I knew that we just had to talk about it today on the show. So what happened was that Mayor Stewart posted on social media after he said that he was driving along Low Heat Highway and Chilco Drive there when he saw a driver in front of him toss their Taco Bell garbage out the window. Can you... Can you imagine how infuriating that would be to see that? Well, he's not just anybody, right? He's the mayor. So he stopped. He picked up the bag. He took a picture of it. And then he told the driver of the white Acura RDX that he would be dropping off their garbage and full license plate number, by the way, with bylaw enforcement. And he said, quote, you can pick it up there or they can deliver it to your home address. Then he used the hashtag really hate litter. Uh, He said litter and illegal dumping costs Coquitlam hundreds of thousands of dollars each year. So I am not surprised to hear that he is getting cheered for this because that is great to hear somebody taking a stand for that. So it's brought up the question too in other jurisdictions. Like obviously there is a littering problem out there. When he took to social media to talk about this, he did get a lot of kudos uh, from people who are right across the spectrum, the political spectrum here in Metro Vancouver, including uh, Melissa DiGenova, who's a Vancouver City Councillor uh, representing the NPA, and she joins us now to talk more about this as well. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Timmy. What is it about that that resonated with you? Like, do you see a litter problem here too? Well, I definitely do. And on a daily basis, when I'm out, uh, you know, walking uh, with my stroller, I have a 19-month-old daughter, uh, or when I'm when I'm driving, even <laughs> driving into council today, I see people tossing cigarette butts out their window, and, and I don't know that maybe they don't understand that that's littering, but it is littering as well. Uh, you know, uh, Mayor Stewart has stepped up a number of times, and and, uh, you know, he goes above and beyond. Uh, you know, there's two Mayor Stewarts now. We have our yeah. Mayor Stewart here in Vancouver. And uh, Richard Stewart, definitely, you know, he's, he uh, certainly takes a keen interest in his community. And uh, I commend that. I think it's important that really we educate people about this. You know, I, I think that it's important that people do understand. But I think it, it should be understood that you don't just toss your, your trash from your, your takeout containers yeah, out no your kidding. window. I know. And you see people doing that. There's so much litter in the city of Vancouver in particular too. Like we need more trash receptacles. We just need more garbage cans. Like, is there more work to be done here? There definitely is more work to be done, but I also think it's, it's about education, right? I mean, there are some people that don't understand that some trash is not trash actually at the city of vancouver through our zero waste strategy we've really been trying to educate people and it's not about shame and it's not about blame it's about educating them to make to help them understand that there are resources out there that they can access online uh, or even on our garbage receptacles here at the city we try and show people what you can put in each of them so it's, it's about teaching a new way of doing things and you know some some stuff's not trash. Definitely, litter is different. Uh, I grew up knowing that you, you just you, you don't be a litter bug. Yeah, exactly. So maybe we need to bring back that campaign. But I, yes. I think for sure, it's educating people and uh, recycling all that we can as well. Do we have a dumping problem in the city? 
Definitely. I, I know that we do have a dumping problem in the city. It's a serious offense. And uh, I think that really what it, what it comes down to is, is people looking, uh, you know, trying to, to make sure that that's reported uh, through in the city of Vancouver. It's through 311. But it's making sure that people understand that, you know, is, is it worth the risk? to get caught and it's not the right thing to do right you know it, it, we're very good about options for people to uh to recycle or to or to point them in the right direction as to where that they can go or right. who they can call but do we give out fines i think i'm guessing that a lot of people are going to say like look at there's not enough enforcement on this like do we actually hand out fines to people for littering it's my understanding that we do at the city of vancouver hand out fines uh the issue is is uh Sometimes uh, we can't hand out a fine because we don't know who did it or yeah. uh, we can't catch them in the act. That being said, uh, if if they can be caught uh, doing it, I understand that there there are serious consequences and it all depends on what they dump, how much they dump and where they dump it. Okay, so but this is something I'll bet you get complaints about this from people. I certainly do. And, and also, I, I think that, uh, you know, it. it I've, I've uh, been asked by residents in Vancouver, why don't we have a day like some of the other municipalities? And, you know, this is something that, that I certainly will be asking. You know, we had a very late council meeting last night, so we didn't really get to uh, through all of the inquiries uh, before the dinner hour that we, we could have gotten through. But I will email the city manager and ask him this. Uh, I was intending to ask it this week. And the question was, you know, many municipalities have a day where you can put things at the side of the road and uh, they're picked up for you. So I I know that other municipalities have that. Uh, I know that some of the some of the stratas or complexes or townhome complexes in Vancouver do that themselves. But can we do that citywide? And what would that cost? And how would how would we work that through? So oh. I've, I've been asked by a number of people for that option. Well, that is certainly one step that I hope we talk more about this issue. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. That is Melissa DiGenova, Vancouver City Councilor, representing the MPA. Well, this Saturday marks a pretty tragic anniversary, one year since the crash uh, that involved the Humboldt Broncos hockey team. And you'll be hearing a lot of special coverage of that right here and on many platforms. And one of the players who died in that crash was Logan Boulay. And just weeks before he died, this 21-year-old young man decided to become an organ donor. And because of that decision, and I'm sure he thought that that was not something he was going to have to deal with for a long, long time. But because of that decision, six organ recipients directly benefited. And not just that, though. Because of that decision and what happened to him, thousands of other people have benefited as well. They call it the Logan Boulay effect. Now, April 7th is going to mark the first Green Shirt Day. It's a national movement that seeks to inspire people right across the country to talk to their families and to get people to register as organ donors. It's also intended to honor, remember, and recognize all of the victims and the families of that tragic crash. So we wanted to have that conversation now. We wanted to talk about what organ donation actually means for those who receive a transplant. So before the show today, I had a chance to speak with Bet Tuasen. He received a kidney transplant last year, and he told us about what one person's decision means and how that became, how an organ donor, how one person becoming an organ donor essentially changed his life. Well, Bet, thank you so much for being with us today. How are you feeling? I am not so bad. I can't complain. Yeah? Good morning. <laughs> yeah, you've had a one-year anniversary from having your kidney transplant. That's right. Yeah, on the 23rd of 
March of last year, I got mine. Uh, there was a kind-hearted person that managed to share me a kidney. What was that like when you got that phone call? To describe it, honestly, it's just like winning the Lotto Max twice and the 649 with it. That big? That big. But the the expression about tear of joy, uh, I have to admit, yes, I shed a few together with my family. So what what kind of a difference has it made for you with the before and after? Well, I could say I have life now. Uh, before, uh, it came to a point where it's like my days are numbered. So I tried to spend as much time as I could with family. Uh, family to us is important. But I was counting hours before I would leave them. But now... I know because judging from my little grandkid, she knows that I might be around to see her graduate from high school maybe. And you didn't yeah. think that before? I was ready to give up, Simi, yes. Um, life wasn't described as living anymore. Uh, to me, life was its something that I could live at the time. How exhausting was it for you? you were, were you getting dialysis every day or how uh, often were I, I you going? I was going for dialysis every other day. And uh, to describe it is it's so draining that at the end of the day, there's nothing left. Uh, all you need is rest. And uh, being on dialysis, you know, every other day, you're given enough time just to recover, to suffer again the following day. Yeah. And... Sometimes the, the strain is not only, or the drain is not only on me as uh, as the patient, but also for the family. Uh, it's it's a heavy burden for the whole family. Uh, we're talking today, of course, because of Green Shirt Day, yes, which is named Green Shirt Day because of humble Bronco Logan Boulay, yes. and we know that because of him, the number of organ donors went way up, and, and you saw that with the, that Logan Boulay effect, right, firsthand? Yes, yeah. Well, uh, was, you know, uh, I'm quite involved in the community campaign for organ donation, and uh, I know that we were scoring pretty good when going to other, you know, small communities. But when this unfortunate tragedy happened, it just showed up, and you could see the number of people uh, like, you know, being at the renal department there for a while, how every, it seems like every other day, the, the beds are getting empty. Oh, when you were empty. getting dialysis? Yes, yeah. yeah. So you know that something was happening. And uh, you could only associate with, you know, this, like I said, with the kindness of of the Boulay family. And, you know, for, for a hero like you know, Logan, to, to, you know, have that foresight to say, okay, I'll save a life. And little did we know that he saved not just one life, but many more lives. Yeah, you can multiply that, right? Yes. Because of the number of people who became an organ donor because of him. Yes. What kind of a difference have you seen then in that community? Because you're obviously still very active, you said. Um, has the Logan Boulay effect been lasting so far, it's been effective until now. You know, we're still seeing a, a lot of 
interest, especially when, like, we participate in, you know, on, on community events and we go there, set up a tent, and the inquiries now are so much more, really? you know, yeah, and uh, you could really feel, sense it that. Uh, we are now a community helping this little village, you know, or we are villages that are helping this community get life again. Your kidney donor, was this uh, a stranger? Like, how long did you have to wait for this donation? Uh, well, you know, I, I was in dialysis for almost four years. Four yeah. years? And uh, I don't know who who was my donor, unfortunately. Uh, we They don't tell us. Uh, I understand some people get to know them after a year yeah. or so or something like that. But, you know, I'm looking forward to that. But with all those things, the biggest, I mean, the biggest trouble for me right now is how do I say thank you to a person that gives you a chance for life? And not only my life, like I said, the lives of my family. So like one life he saved, but no, he saved more lives than that. And, you know, uh, I've also, you know, uh, I, I also call other heroes like, you know, the living donors, for example. Though we don't get to know them right away, uh, I hope one day I would, you know, uh, be able to say thank you. It's either to their, you know, their family or to their circle. Yeah. What a difference it has made for you. <sighs> like I said, Sarah, uh, my life, like, I could honestly say I'm alive. You know, I'm I'm living a life again. Yeah. And like I said, the family to me is very important. Now I know that I still have a, mm-hmm. well, I have now another chance to be with family. So if you could tell people, you know, I mean, for this green shirt day, yes. first one, we want to make sure it has a big impact out there. What would you tell people then? What should they do? Well, what I would say is, be a part of this community. You know, this community needs you. And it's something that would help promote life itself. Uh, save one life, but save many more lives. And you never know. Yes. You never know, right? Yes. When you might need it yourself. You, that's true. Yes. You that's probably really never true. thought you were going to need a kidney well, one day. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, I, I always thought that maybe it could never happen to me, but boom, all of a sudden I was diagnosed with it. L- leaving went down, and all of a sudden here I am gasping for, for breath, and all of a sudden somebody. Uh, made that ultimate sacrifice, I guess, for me, that would be a hero. Uh, They are heroes to me, yeah. Well, Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. And, you know, I thank uh, all the media people that are helping us deliver the message to everybody. That is Bet Tuasen, who is a receiver of a kidney transplant, had it about one year ago. He's advocating for more awareness of organ donors, also for better transport services for transplant patients. Uh, but we are telling stories like Bet's in honor of the inaugural Green Shirt Day, which is coming up on April the 7th. And this, of course, is all for Logan Boulay. In the Alberta hometown of one of the victims of that Humboldt Broncos crash has also announced that they're going to be naming an arena after 
after him. This is Lethbridge City Council voted unanimously yesterday to change Adams Park Ice Centre to the Logan Boulay Arena. And Doug Paisley coached uh, Logan Boulay in minor hockey and says renaming the arena is a great way to honour Boulay and his legacy. He's going to be known for hockey because a lot of his accomplishments were through hockey, but his biggest accomplishment was the gift of life to six individuals and the impact of a quarter million that's growing. I just think it's perpetual. I think there could be literally millions of people affected by this. Oh, it really is amazing, isn't it? And don't forget Green Shirt Day coming up on April the 7th, and you'll be hearing a lot more about that. Uh, Lots of coverage coming up in the days ahead. He's continuing to remove everyone who has stood up to his abuse of power and his cover-up of this scandal. Now, pressuring an attorney general to interfere in a criminal proceeding. That's wrong. Kicking out two members of parliament who stood up to his abuse of power. That's unconscionable. That is Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer in the House of Commons just during the past hour confronting Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the removal of Jody Wilson-Raybould and Dr. Jane Philpott from the Liberal caucus. That happened yesterday, but still a lot of repercussions coming from that. Now, the Prime Minister is definitely on the defensive today. Uh, we also heard earlier from Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott and their thoughts on what has happened. They said they haven't fully decided yet what their next moves will be or even if they're going to run in the next election. The Prime Minister, though, for his part, said the bonds of trust are broken with their fellow MPs over this whole situation, and that's why they were removed from caucus. Well, our next guest has been very vocal on this topic, and we're going to hear more about what she has to say about this. Sheila Copps joins us now, former Cabinet Minister, uh, former Deputy Prime Minister of Canada. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for the invitation. You've been very vocal on this topic, and do you believe the Prime Minister had no choice to do this? Oh, absolutely. And with all the sturm and drang of Andrew Scheer that you just played a clip, his uh, deputy leader says they don't want either of the women in their caucus. So you're saying what, that there's no room for them to speak out? No, he's saying that they were kicked out of the Liberal caucus. They don't want them in their caucus. But they're obviously wanting this issue to carry on because it's been going on for two months. It's done tremendous amount of damage to the Liberal Party. Uh, you can see it in the poll numbers across the country. This internal fight has helped Andrew Scheer. But when you hear him on television decrying the fact that these two women have been drummed from the Liberal caucus, you have to ask the question, if they're so ethical, why is it that he doesn't want them in his caucus? Okay, well, what do you think should have happened here? What was the better way for the Prime Minister to deal with this? I think it should have been dealt with earlier. Um, I don't think that the last two months has, has done anybody any favors. And the release of the tape that uh, basically became the straw that broke the camel's back simply reaffirmed the comments that she made in the Justice Committee a month and a half ago and the comments that were made by um, Michael Wernick at the time. There's no new information that's come out in the last six weeks, and I think Canadians are sick of the whole thing and they want to move on. You really think Canadians are sick of it? Oh, totally. Totally. My my, uh, Twitter account is up about 3,000 in the last two weeks. And uh, 90% of what I'm getting is uh, basically saying move on and stop this drama, this internal drama that's basically damaging nobody except the Liberals. I mean, if you look at the former, the former uh, Attorney General had a strong history with Indigenous peoples, and yet when Trudeau asked her to take on the job of minister to get rid of the Indian Act, she said no. There, there's a lot of uh, um, behind-the-scenes stuff here that the caucus was extremely uncomfortable, and I think the 
final straw was when uh, they discovered that she was taping. I think one of her colleagues has suggested there are other tapes. So who knows what has been going on in the back rooms. Wait a minute. In your experience then, was there ever space for someone who was in caucus, a cabinet minister, to speak up and say, listen, this is wrong. What we're doing is wrong. Well, all the time. That's what caucus is for. And that's what it's supposed to be for. But in the case of the former attorney general, she was asked by several members of the Justice Committee, whom did you speak to on this issue before you made your decision? And remember, all that was asked was that the um, former Attorney General seek a second legal opinion from uh, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, which she refused to do. Now, she has three years as a prosecutor. Uh, Beverly McLaughlin was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, but somehow Jody Wilson-Raybould did not want to consult her. And all that the government was asking was, look, if we're going to put these jobs at risk, let's ensure that we've done all our due diligence and done everything possible to be able to save those jobs if possible. And that's part of the government's job as well. Right. But if she's saying this is an independent decision and out of my hands, why not respect that? But it's not out of her hands. There was, a, there was a piece of legislation called the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, which, is, which was voted on by all the parties last year. And that's the piece of legislation that permits a company that has done wrong to um, plead guilty before they go to court and set out the actions that they're going to do to fix that and if they don't do so, they end up in court. So it's, it's not illegal. She herself said before the committee there was nothing illegal done. Do you think then that SNC-Lavalin deserved that second look? Of course. Why? Of course they deserved the second look. Well, why, would you, why would you put... Um, uh, if you have a law, which is, by the way, used in the UK, used in all other parts of the OECD that basically says if a company has done something in another country, in Libya, 10 years ago, somebody did something bad, and the company should be punished, but you shouldn't put at risk the 5,000 jobs outside Quebec and the 4,000 jobs inside Quebec at the same time. Why would you get rid of all these jobs because three or four people did something horrible? Because this you is a company a with a known track record for doing corrupt things and for bribing officials. That's, that's simply not true. That's simply not true. In fact... The whole board of directors of the company has been removed. They've made a huge number of changes. This thing happened when Muammar Gaddafi was alive, and he's been dead for a decade. So there is a huge change of the culture at SNC-Lavalin. And, I mean, I know there's people in your uh, viewing, listening area. You wouldn't believe the number of uh, emails that I've received from people who work across the country in the field saying, look, we're happy to change the culture of this place, and we should. The Deferred Prosecution Agreement is the instrument by which you do that, and that's why the OECD brought it in, because do you think that in far-flung places around the world, everybody plays by the same rules that we do? They don't. And that's why the OECD created an instrument called the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, which countries are now lining up to include in their laws, which means you go to court, everything is published, everything's in the open, and you lay out a, I'm guilty, and B, this is what I'm going to do and have already done to fix it. And if I don't, you can send me to jail. Right, but That's it, what a deferred prosecution is agreement it is. not dangerous for any government to start defending a company when that's just going to, that's going to go wrong? People look at that and go, why are you going to bat for a private company? Well, why would, why, why would that's, that's our job is to go to bat for Canadian jobs. Like, why would you not? And, and on the issue of the deferred prosecution agreement, what was so egregious, I actually wrote a column in uh, January, t- 
trashing Trudeau and defending Jody Wilson-Rebolt when she got what I perceived was a demotion. Then I watched her in the Justice Committee, and it became very clear to me when she said, and this is what really tipped it for me, she said, I decided, I made sure that I made my decision on this deferred prosecution agreement question before I would take a meeting with the Prime Minister. She didn't say, I'm going to go listen to my boss, see what he has to say, and then review the facts. I took the decision, and when asked by all the members of the committee whom she had consulted, if she consulted a single cabinet colleague or a single member of caucus, she couldn't name one person. You cannot run a one-person show when you're in government. You're part of a team. And what's gone on in the last two months, mostly by her, but aided and abetted by, the, the, by Dr. Philpott, has done nothing but damage the things that she claims to believe in. Climate change and all the other issues that we should be talking about are taking a backseat to a guy like Andrew Scheer, who is now a defender of feminists. It's a joke. Well, let's talk about the leadership issue here. Clearly, the Prime Minister could have and should have handled this better. Of course he should have. Of course he should have. They should have been gone a month ago. You think I, that, I, was his, that was the better leadership issue, is getting rid of them earlier? What about the fact that he denied, denied, denied at the very beginning without finding out... He didn't out- deny anything. He's never denied anything. He said from the beginning... Ms. Copps, the day he, after this story came out in the Globe and Mail newspaper, he was at a press conference where he said this story is 100% undue, false. Because there was never any undue pressure. In his opinion. Yes, that's all he can have is his, his viewpoint. I mean, I was a, I was a minister. I've, I've received death threats in the last week. People perceive pressure differently. Jody Wilson-Raybould had eight meetings, and to her that was quote-unquote undue pressure. But the bottom line is, if you go through the Michael Wernick tape, which she um, uh, unethically taped, it shows quite clearly that the Michael Wernick did not um, th- give her any veiled threats, and the only veiled threat received was the threat that she sent to um, the chief of staff of the prime minister, basically saying, if you, take, if you change my position, I'm going to create problems for you. What would be your advice on this now to the prime minister? Well, I think they have to turn the page. I mean, the caucus was just roiling because for two months, these women have managed to derail the budget, um, take attention away from climate change, um, the allowed uh, Mr. Scheer to run around as a pretend, let's pretend feminist. And I think now they need to change the channel because they're six months away from an election and they got to start focusing on the issues that people really care about. So I'm glad they're gone. I think you're going to have three or four more days of this kind of discussion and then it's over and we can actually move on to the agenda. Well, we'll see what happens. Thank you very much for your time on this. Thanks for calling. That is Sheila Copps, the former cabinet minister and deputy prime minister of Canada. And yes, she does have thoughts on how this has unfolded. I'm not sure her thoughts completely, actually I know her thoughts don't completely line up with what a lot of other Canadians think out there. You know, 10 years ago, uh, today actually, a woman who was the mother of two teenage girls went for a jog on a Friday afternoon in Pacific Spirit Park on the west side of Vancouver. And that's all we know. Wendy Ladner Beaudry was murdered there. And in the years since then, while there has been, you know, lots of speculation, there's been no progress in finding out who did this to her or what happened. Today, police held a press conference to remind us about this case and to talk about what the last 10 years has been like. Also, we're joined now by Peter Ladner, Wendy Ladner Beaudry's brother. And thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Pleased to be here, Simi. Let's start by getting you to tell us about Wendy. What was Wendy like? Um, Wendy was a, a great mother. She was a very wise person. She was physically active. She was a fantastic athlete. She was a former um, 
world telemark ski champion. She was a really good swimmer, and she loved physical activity, and she loved to try to share that that joy that she had with other people and uh, help en- enrich their lives. She was the co-chair of the, the BC Games and uh, very involved. She knew all the Olympics people and avid field hockey player and um, just a, a wonderful, wonderful person. What do we know about what happened that day? Uh, she went out for a jog, the place she, used, she usually went, and uh, she was coming back, I think she was coming back, yeah, and she was very close to the entrance to the park at, uh, was it Marine Drive and Camosun? I think it's Camosun, Camosun. Yeah. And she got killed. And nobody knows why, nobody knows who did it, nobody, there was no motive, it was seemed like a random killing, and she was by herself, um, she did not have earplugs in, and uh, she must have been caught by surprise, and there it is. And it was a very small window, wasn't it, that this could have happened from the time that she went running to the time that somebody actually found her body? Yeah, it was 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and uh, I, I don't know exactly when her body was found, but it was, yeah, it was very shortly after that. Somebody yeah. came across it, and she was lying there. And, and such a really public area. I know we always say Pacific Spirit Park, but there's an elementary school nearby. There's people on those trails all the time at that time of day. Yeah, the park people have cleared out a little bit of the brush since then, but if you go to the site now, as I do quite often, um, you can see the traffic on Marine Drive. It's right there, and you can pretty much see the entrance to the park it's it's a very it's it's not completely public but it's pretty public place it is one of the most puzzling mysteries isn't it like 10 years and no sign like what have the police told you about this well i gotta be thankful for the police for the effort that they put into this they haven't let this case go we were out there this morning talking with them and and uh they've been doing all sorts of investigations they've they claim they've interviewed thousands of people and uh they don't have a suspect. They don't have a. I was going to say they don't have a clue. Literally, they don't have a clue. Uh, they don't know why it happened. They're they're sort of grasping around. They're now, as we all are, relying on somebody to come forward who knows about it and hasn't said anything yet. We've had lots of tips and clairvoyance and. Have you really? Oh, yeah. Talk to psychics, the whole thing? Well, we haven't gone to talk to them, but they've come to us and said, I, I, I know what happened or this happened or that happened. We asked the police today, have you ever solved a crime based on a, something from a clairvoyant? And the answer was not, no, never. And they um, must have to deal with that all the time, though, right? They do. Plus, people who have crazy ideas and, and funny tips, but uh, and so I, I, maybe some of them have been real, but they haven't been able to to find anything that, that lasts. I saw something, I think was it was today, that said the police have had something like 300 different people that they looked at for this at some point? Oh, more than that. Yeah, yeah they say 300, but some they were asked today and how many they'd question, and they say for each person we look at, there might be 10 or 20 others around those people that we interview. And they've been trying to get people to do polygraphs and other things, and uh, you can't force people to do these things, and when you don't have a... Uh, a piece of evidence or a witness to say this was the person and you just got to go and grind them down, then they don't even know whether it's worthwhile pursuing. Do you think that's, um, Peter, the reason why this story continues to just be in the news and fascinates us all is that it's so hard to believe that something like that could happen 
And there's no evidence of any, like no clue at all, as you say, what happened to her. It's very hard to believe. And because it's, we do believe, and the police believe it was a random killing, that's one of the reasons they're continuing to pursue it, because a random killing means that the same person could go out and randomly kill somebody else. Most killings occur from from people who are known to the other person, to the victim. Um, And so there's a kind of a smaller circle of potential victims. But this... This one, like it could be anybody at any time. And that's the thing I think that scares the public too, right? Is that that's a very popular park. Lots of people go jogging in there. They're walking in there. And if it could happen to her, it could happen to anybody. That's right. What has the last 10 years been like for your family then and trying to keep kind of Wendy's memory out there? Well, obviously inside the family, we think about her a lot. Um, We feel it's our job really as far as this investigation goes to keep keep this out in the public because all we can do is is uh, let people know how much we're suffering and think somebody might have some empathy and decide it's time to say what they know. So it's your belief that there's somebody out there who does know something? There must be. There has to be. Not even the, just the person who did it, but people around them notice some susp- suspicious behavior. There was a lot of um, a lot of commotion and noise and fuss and media attention at the time it happened. Yeah, uh, you couldn't have lived in the neighborhood or around been around without knowing it had happened and maybe noticing something in the behavior of somebody that you observed that seemed a bit a bit suspicious or right. something. That is usually how these things happen, like later on when we solve these things, right? Is that they didn't think it was relevant, but you don't know what's actually relevant, what might be significant to this. That's right. And uh, so, I mean, if somebody has any little idea and they thought, oh, this is too crazy to, I never thought I would mention it before, or it doesn't, I'm really not sure, uh, call the police and you've got, I, I assume you've got the number there. You can I tell do have the, the number. number. I can tell them they can call, let's see, Crime Stoppers, 1 800 222 8477, or just call RCMP Major Crimes Unit. That's 778 290 5291. I mean, every year we do this. Peter, I know. Right? Every yeah, year. Believe me, I know. Yeah, uh, you've got you're wearing a T-shirt today that has a Wendy's picture on it with her name there. How many years have you had to wear that now on the anniversary to talk about her story? Well, um, it was Chip Wilson actually from Lululemon who, who provided these T-shirts right right around the time when we had the first sort of rally and run in the park. And um, <clears throat> yeah, it comes out every year. Have things changed in the park? You said that you still go there. To where this happened, is there were there safety issues? Have things improved there? I don't know. Uh, around this person, I, I can't think things have improved, except that over 10 years, maybe the person's moved away. Maybe they never lived there in the first place. Uh, maybe they never want to go back there. But, but you said they cleared the brush, though, too. Is there better lighting? Is, there, have this, is the park condition improved then? I don't think the park's really changed that much. No, I, th- I mean... To, they've cleared. I don't know why they cleared the brush. Maybe because of this. Uh, yeah, I don't know. This is very hard. What's how? What's the family been like? I know that Wendy had uh, two daughters, two teenage girls. What's it been like for them? It's been really hard for them, and they've lived with it and been very stoic about it. But I know that it it deeply affects them to this day. And for her husband Michelle, it's been just shattering. It's uh, you know from starting out. Being a suspect, you, you you find out your wife's been murdered, and then suddenly you're a suspect, and you're treated like some murderer. Um, that's let me just say unsettling, to put it lightly. 
and then going through the lie detectors and all that stuff, and also people's kind of, um, I, I got to say malicious, idle speculation that they somehow know that the husband did it. And we know, the police know that he had, you know, he is as much a victim as, as more of a victim than anybody else. And uh, so it's been, it's been very hard for him. I can imagine. Do you have hope though? Like we, we keep hearing about, you know, the crimes being solved from decades ago, whether it's DNA or new technology, you know, things like that. Do you have hope that someday we're going to get answers on this? Oh, we have to have hope uh, because that's part of it. We, we feel like uh, we owe it to Wendy. We owe it to the community. We owe it to the rest of the family. The, the family owes it to, its, to itself to, to find some resolution to this, even though we know that if there were a suspect in a trial, it would be another whole round of pain and agony and, and public heartache. But it's something we, we think it's important to, to push through and, and hope for. Fingers crossed, right? Yeah. You do never know when that one thing might happen. So if anyone with any information, as Peter was just saying here, even if you don't think there was something important about that day, there might have been. You just don't know. Uh, please call RCMP Major Crimes Unit, 778-290-5291. Think back to that day, April 3rd, 2009. If you saw anything or heard anything unusual, uh, you can also call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Peter, thanks for joining us on this today. Thanks for doing this, Simi. Brunei has been in the headlines the last little while and for all the wrong reasons. They have some new Islamic laws that are taking effect in that country today, and it will punish gay sex and adultery by stoning the offenders to death. This has triggered, as you can imagine, and rightfully so, an outcry from countries, from civil rights groups, and from celebrities that go far beyond that tiny Southeast Asian nation. The penalties were provided for under new sections of Brunei's Sharia Penal Code, and it was instituted in 2014. They were trying to build up the influence of Islam in the monarchy, which is around 430,000 people, two-thirds of whom are Muslim. And remember, this is a very, very oil-rich, very wealthy country. So even before 2014, we know that homosexuality in Brunei was already punishable by a jail term of up to 10 years. But these new laws mean that people found guilty could be stoned to death. Now, this has made a lot of headlines because the Sultan of Brunei, the head of that country, owns a lot of properties, a lot of hotel properties in particular all over the world. And celebrities like George Clooney have been leading the charge saying, don't stay at any of them. Cut off any business to that country if they have property uh, in your area. Don't stay. Don't spend your money there. We wanted to talk more about the impact of all of this with our guest, who's Bridget Welsh, who's an associate professor of political science at the John Cabot University in Rome. Bridget, thank you for joining us. Most welcome. Uh, nice to speak with you. Tell me, what is happening in Brunei? Why are these changes coming in now? Well, the government, as you mentioned, first introduced laws in 2014. They just didn't specify the legal code. So it's been five years that they have put off uh, specifying a legal code. And I think the reasons that the timing is now is that there's pressure for them to actually deliver on what they said earlier. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the domestic situation at home. Uh, the sultan is 72. Um, he's passing on power to his son. Uh, he wants to leave a legacy. He wants to also, uh, at a certain degree, uh, strengthen his son in terms of religious legitimacy. The re 
regime is much weaker than it was before because of the economy and oil prices have contracted. There is a need to diversify the economy. Uh, and so he relies more on religious legitimacy to show up his political power. And I think uh, this particular legal code, uh, he believes in that he can do that by tapping into some of the more conservative elements in the society and giving himself things as a veneer of legitimacy. Right. Does he not care then what the perception of that is outside of Brunei? Well, you know, you've seen a, a bit of an important shift in Southeast Asia, and that has to do with the fact that, you know, the West is no longer as important and as influential as it used to be, and it doesn't have the same uh, gravitas on issues of human rights than it did in the past. So China, for example, is a much more important player for Brunei. Um, and, of course, they don't stand up for these issues uh, as, as the West has done. And so I think, uh, you know, the, the Brunei government has, has made his choices um, and feeling that they can actually get away with it. Um, and I think the only place that where it's going to be hit or where you mentioned are in the Sultan's businesses, which are his hotels are located predominantly in the West. Um, and I think uh, we're going to see how this plays out. And this is not the first time a boycott was called. It was called earlier. Um, and I, I think he's hoping that with time he'll be able to sustain uh, and bring back the business um, and, and get over the hump in terms of the, the outcry that, that people are having over these provisions. Which, by the way, as you mentioned, not just in terms of gay sex and, uh, and issues associated with um, uh, adultery, it also involves things like cross-dressing, and it could actually extend to uh, you know, people as young as seven years old oh. uh, in terms of children. So the human rights violations that are, that, are, that are being spoken about are really quite broad. Uh, so we know that the Sultan of Brunei, I remember he used to be like the richest man in the world. That has certainly changed. Is there an economic problem then in Brunei? No, I think he's, he's still very wealthy, and he, he owns multiple hotels, and he's a billionaire, uh, many pulls over. Um, I, but I think you've seen new sources of wealth in technology sectors and others, uh, so it's not just coming from oil and gas revenue. Uh, but the long-term uh, projections for Brunei's oil and gas revenues are not as positive as they were 30 years ago. So there is more pressure for him to diversify the economy uh, and to look to different options. But he still is very wealthy, and the exact amount of his wealth is really not known because there's, there's not transparency in this system. Right. Now, the two big properties that he owns are uh, the Bel Air and the Beverly Hills Hotel, and many Hollywood celebrities, uh, Elton John, George Clooney, even Richard Branson, are saying, yeah, I'm not going to stay at any one of those properties. Will that, do you think, have any kind of an impact? Well, I think uh, I think that there has been significant outcry, and I, I think that these provisions, you know, really raise a lot of eyebrows, uh, and, and many, uh, you know, are quite shocked at the scope of uh, what is being what is being introduced. Uh, but the question will be whether or not this is that the boycott and issues are being sustainable. Um, and I think it's not just in the United States, as you mentioned, but there are also um, quite a few properties in Europe. Um, and I think that these, we'll see whether or not it, it affects the economic bottom line. Um, but for, for the Sultan, I'm sure he's made his calculations uh, in the sense that he, he recognizes that he's hoping that the, there will, this will be a temporary boot, uh, decline in business and that longer term he'll be able to track people into these very, very swanky hotels that he owns. What do we know about the Sultan's son then who could potentially be on the throne soon? 
Well, he's not as dynamic a figure as his father, um, and I think this is one of the reasons that I, I think there is an attempt to sort of shore up. But it, it's, you know, I think one has to recognize the Sultan, although he's 72, is still quite healthy, um, and I think that he, uh, it's a question about paving the way uh, for uh, for his children and for the future generations, uh, and uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, he's not he's not like it's going to, going tomorrow sort of thing. Right. So there's still time here. So in essence, then, Bridget, doesn't matter, it sounds like, how much the rest of the world is upset about this. Uh, Brunei seems to be quite content with moving forward on their own. Well, I think it will matter. I think uh, it, it's not just about the hotels. I think that the question will be whether or not there will be an impact on investment in Brunei itself. I and mean, there are a lot of oil companies that are, uh, the oil and gas companies that are connected to Brunei. Uh, and I think that uh, if these things send signals of uh, that this is just not acceptable, um, they, you know, then I think you're going to see shifts. I mean, one of the things that was happening when the TPP was being passed um, in the, uh, that the that Brunei had agreed to sort of not include many of these provisions. Now that there is a new arrangement, I think that you don't have the same uh, legal provisions to protect uh, businesses and companies and individuals working in Brunei compared to the past. I think that uh, as people move forward and look at investment dynamics uh, for Brunei, uh, I think there's going to be more pressure as well. Interesting. Bridget, thank you for your time. Most welcome. Appreciate that. That's Bridget Welsh, Associate Professor of Political Science at the John Cabot University in Rome.